0: And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday Morning Mosaic Worship Service, Garfield Memorial Church, Widening the Circle. Good morning again. Oh, I got cut up in the video and forgot to step into place here, so... Welcome to worship again here today with Garfield Memorial Church. We are continuing in our series "Map My Run," and uh, it's all about uh, the strategy that, that we are offering as a church to for getting from here to there. and And here is wherever you are, and wherever we are, and there is into uh, what is more and more the kingdom of God, more and more the image of Christ, more and more the beloved community. And we've 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 been talking a lot. Lot about these kinds of things ever since we we uh, uh, began the vision 2020 process all the way back in 2020 and and our strategy is is really actually very simple. Um, Pastor Chip talked about the first thing last week: explore. We want to provide opportunities for people to explore a relationship with Jesus, explore a relationship with the church—that is, the people who are followers of Jesus, His body on earth. We want to offer opportunities for people to connect and encourage people to take advantage of those opportunities to connect with other folks in the community, in the church, connecting, of course, also with Jesus. We want people to commit, to to take to go from that exploring to connecting, to committing to the mission and ministry of the church, committing to widening the circle of Jesus' love by connecting diverse people who share a common brokenness with Jesus. And through all of that, the, the end of that, or, or maybe just another step on the journey is transformation, to transform. Not just personal transformation, not just... Although that's an important part of it Each of us becoming more and more like Jesus Being shaped more and more into the image of Christ But our communities Our, our, our societies Our nations, our world Transforming more and more into the beloved community That kingdom of God um, Dr. King Put it this way, he said in a speech At a victory rally following the announcement Of a favorable U.S. Supreme Court decision Desegregating the seats on Montgomery's buses He said, the end is Reconciliation The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding, goodwill, that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of people. Today, as again, last week, Pastor Chip talked about connect. Uh, this week, or I'm sorry, last week, Pastor Chip talked about explore. This week, I'm talking about connect. Connecting, connecting is central and foundational to the Christian life, both for us as individuals and us as a community, as followers of Jesus, ourselves and together. It's central and it's foundational. I don't think it's possible for us to live into this beloved community unless we're willing to connect, unless we go beyond even the willingness to connect and actually do connect. And what we need to connect to, if we want to live into the beloved community, we have to be willing, we have to be able, we have to commit to connecting to the broken community. We share this common brokenness. We look forward to, we're living more and more into the beloved community. We look forward to the consummation of the kingdom of God, but we are a broken community. We are a community of broken people coming together in our brokenness and seeing that brokenness not eradicated, but, but transmogrified, redeemed, transformed into beauty and joy and hope. But this connecting, I don't think it is impossible for us to oversize, overemphasize the importance of connecting. And there are some obstacles to that. And some of those obstacles are obvious when we talk about connecting. I, hey, we're in a pandemic right now. How are we supposed to connect? The video said face to face. How can we get face to face with people? We got to wear masks. You know what? that's a real that's really part of our real challenge that we live in today are you aware in terms of of uh, you know this difficulty in connecting that since the pandemic started there's been a 600% increase in teen suicide isolation and disconnection are literally killing us There are obstacles, your time, your talent, your schedule. You know, you got work, you've got activities, you've got, you know, meetings you've got to go to. You've made some of you have kids and you got kids activities and lots of kids activities to go to. And how can we possibly connect? How can we commit to doing these things? How can we do that with all this stuff going on? All of these things are real and I don't want to minimize them. But at some level, all of these things are simply reasons that we give for not doing something. Okay, I, I like rock climbing I really like rock climbing I'm not great at it, but I thoroughly enjoy it When I was younger, uh, a lot younger Back when I was in seminary, I went with a group We did a rock climbing trip to the North Georgia mountains Took a youth group up there And uh, there was an old guy, he was really old Probably about my age now um, Who was leading that trip and, and I said to him, don't remember his name But I said to him, man, I really, really Really want to do a lot of rock climbing Uh, you know, as I grew up and get out of school. And he looked back at me and he said, you know what? If you want to, you'll do it. I remember that, clear as day. And here's the reality, I didn't do it. I bought the ropes, I bought the helmets, I bought the the webbing, I bought bought the carabiners and the eight rings and the D rings and I bought all of the stuff you need to go to rock climbing. And I've been rock climbing, I think, two times since then. Like two times in the last 30 years. I didn't really want to do it. I had a lot of reasons. I had a lot of reasons. Wanting to do something, really wanting to do something. We really will make time to do things that we really want to do. A kids club. I love kids club. Uh, all of the guys that come to kids club, or probably 80% of the guys that come to kids club, they're going to play in the NBA or the NFL when they graduate. That's their career goal. You ask them, have you played basketball today? No, eh, you're not going to play in the NBA. You're not. If you really want that, you're gonna exhibit certain behaviors, all of the other things again the way I you know, our kids' clubbers we have right when I first started kids club, we had a group of guys playing basketball that if it was snowing outside and we didn't put up the basketball hoops, they were like, Pastor Scott, we've gotta get the basketball hoops up. I'm like, It's twenty five degrees, we don't care. You know, this fall when we restarted I had a group of guys and, and I it was like fifty degrees out and cloudy and the guys were like, Pastor Scott, can we move the hoops inside? It's a little cold. It's like okay. All right, we're happy to do it. They're not going to play in the NBA. They're not. Jerry West is a great example of of seeing all the sort of external obstacles as things we can work through to get to what we really want to do. Jerry West, one of the greatest basketball players in the history of the NBA from the uh, almost heaven West Virginia State. And and he was growing up in West Virginia in the days when it was really cold in the winter in West Virginia. And, And in the winter, Jerry West grew up in a very poor family, very poor community. He would go outside for hours a day, every day, all through the winter, Shooting basketball by himself His hands, he would come back His hands would be red and chapped and cracked and broken Because he was outside in freezing temperatures Shooting basketball for hours at a time It was so important You know, in West Virginia, everything's on a hill That's why the cows have one leg shorter than the other Because they all, you know, stand on hills That's not true, but it's fun to imagine but he, he, was, he was so committed He didn't want to chase the basketball down the hill So he was like, I don't want to miss Because if I miss, i got to chase the basketball down the hill And I don't want to have to wander and get the basketball If it goes in and bounces off someplace else So he got so good at it that he would make the shot And hit the back of the rim in such a way That even when he made it, it would come straight back to him That's how much he wanted to play basketball And that's why he was one of the greatest basketball players In the NBA That's what he wanted He really wanted And all of those external obstacles Were just things that it was like I can work with that I can deal with that I'll find a way I'll make a way Connecting you know, most folks in the church that I encounter say, oh yeah, I want to connect. I want to connect with God. I want to connect with other people. But I got this, I got that, I got the other thing. Those are all really excuses that we use because we don't maybe really want that as much as we say we want it. So what did I want to get at today are those two internal obstacles that keep us from, I think, wanting to connect. In such a way that, that if we, you know, they get in the way of our wanting to connect, our desire for connecting, and, and then allow those other external obstacles to become insurmountable. These internal obstacles, if we can work our way through those, the external obstacles, they'll still be there, they'll still be real, but we'll find a way. We'll find a way. The first obstacle that keeps you from connect and by the way, I'm stepping on toes. If I haven't already, I might have already a little bit. I really am right now. I'm stepping on my toes too. Just got to say that right up front. First obstacle that will keep you from connecting in the beloved community is your sense of self-righteousness. Your sense that you know what's right and what's wrong and who's right and who's wrong, and there are certain folks that you just can't connect with because that would be wrong. They will somehow taint or drag you down or or make you unholy and you can't connect with them. That sense of self-righteousness. This was the struggle the Pharisees had in the passage that Flora read this morning. I'm gonna read just a portion of that again. Matthew chapter nine here started this time starting at verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. All right. Jesus was having dinner. We're going to leave this one up for a while. Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. This was not a functional kind of thing. It wasn't, I got to, I'm got. i hungry, um, there's no McDonald's nearby, Matthew's got the barbecue out, we'll stop over there, we'll eat, it'll all be good, then we'll move on. Eating was not functional. Sharing dinner was not functional. It was relational. Who you ate dinner with mattered. When you had someone in your house, you said, this person is my people. I want them a part of my life. I want people to identify people in the world now need to identify me with them and them with me. When you went into someone's house for dinner, you were saying the same thing. I want people that are looking to know you can now identify me with the folks in this house and the folks in this house with me. They're my people. I'm their people. We're tight. We're good with each other. And so Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Matthew was a tax collector. In the eyes of most of the community around them, Matthew was a traitor and the vilest sort of traitor you could be. The Romans had come in, the latest in a long series of foreign powers that had conquered the nation of Israel. They were there. They had their government. They put their leaders in place. They regulated the daily life of the Israelites. They regulated their religious life to a certain degree. They regulated what they could and couldn't do. And and the tax collectors worked for the Romans. And they got rich working for the Romans. They were local folks who agreed to collect taxes for the Roman government. And if the Roman government said, we need you to collect this much, tax and turn it into us. You're allowed to collect that much. You can keep the rest. Just give this much to us. And that's what the tax collectors did. They used the power and the might of the Roman government to extort money from their neighbors. They were religious traders. They were political traitors. They were social traitors. They were national traitors. They were, they were despised and they were rejected. And Jesus went to Matthew's house for dinner. And, and Matthew, this was after Jesus had called Matthew. He was at his tax collector booth. He was doing his tax collector job. And Jesus said, I want you to be one of my followers. And Matthew was like, cool, I'll do that. Come over to my house for dinner. And Matthew wasn't like, oh, I feel so bad for being a tax collector. I'm gonna start hanging out with the right people now. So I'm gonna invite the religious people, the Pharisees and the priests and the good folks into my house to show Jesus that I'm trying to become a better person. Matthew invited his the other tax collectors in the area and other sinners. Tax collector was a special category of sinner. It was like, you know how we do that. We're like, everybody's a sinner, but those people, they're really bad. Well, tax collectors were part of those people who were really bad. But, but Matthew, the writer of this gospel, wants to make it, wants it cl- be clear to all of us that he invited everyone he invited into his house that day, with the exception of Jesus, was a sinner. And Jesus went, and he took his disciples, and they had dinner, and Jesus said, these folks are my folks. I want to be identified with them. I want them to be identified with me. Now, the moral religious people were watching. They're always watching. (laughs) They're always watching. People, you know, cancel culture didn't start in 2020. They were watching. The Pharisees wanted to cancel Jesus and Matthew all at one time. Like why did your master They didn't ask Jesus himself They went to his disciples Why is Jesus eating with them You see In their eye The Pharisees They were very religious folks They were deeply committed To the Jewish faith they were deeply committed to the Messiah, deeply committed to the coming kingdom of God. They very much wanted to be part of what we now call the beloved community. Very, very, very much wanted to be part of that. And when they, when they and they heard this possibility that Jesus, dude, he's doing miracles. He's gathering disciples. Maybe he's the Messiah. Let's check him out. And they saw what Jesus was doing. They saw who he was hanging out with. And they said, "How? Well, if he's hanging out with them, he can't be the Messiah. Can't be. Messiah would never do that. They had a sense of what was right and what was wrong. And their sense of what was right and what was wrong, of the right way of living, the right way of being in relationship with folks, said we cannot possibly follow Jesus as Messiah because no Messiah would ever hang out with those people. So that can't be the kingdom of God. It can't be the beloved community. He can't be the Messiah. We're gonna walk away from this. But of course we know that Jesus is the Messiah that that was a manifestation of the beloved community. And the Pharisees were just walking away from that. Their self-righteousness, their sense of I know what's right and what's wrong. I know who's right and who's wrong. I know who's in and who's out. And I can't associate with those people. I've lived through this. I've been on the Pharisee side of it before. I've I've in very, very small and limited ways, kind of been on the Jesus side of it. I'm, I'm hoping more and more to live into that sign. I want to tell you, you know, when I went to seminary, when I first went to seminary, I went in with walls up. I went in, my suspicions were high. I'd been warned by people I loved and I trusted that said, be careful at seminary. They'll take your faith at seminary. They don't really believe in Jesus there. They're, they're going to they're gonna screw up your faith at seminary. I knew this person. They went to seminary and they were never the same again. So I, I was surrounded by hundreds of people who had the same goal, the same mission, the same desire. Learn more about Jesus, follow him better, learn how to better lead other people to follow Jesus but I would sit in chapel thinking I'm not like these people these people those people and I learned a lot of stuff at seminary but I made almost no connections there's no one I met there that I still have relationship with I excluded myself because my own sense of self-righteousness didn't include those people It was a top ta- point when I was working. This was, a, was in a community far, far away, uh, a long time ago in a community far, far away. I messed up that joke. I did it better at nine o'clock. So you don't know any of these folks. But it was a group of folks who were working the same project stuff and, and I, I was friends with a lot of folks but there were two folks I was closest to and they hated each other. They just, they just hated each other. They had nothing in common. They couldn't get along. And no matter what one of them said, the other one took offense and, and was hurt by it. And, and, and they just couldn't stand each other. I'm gonna call them person A and person B. I'm not even gonna give them fake names. Every time I do that, I end up saying the real name at some point in the story. So person A and person B. And it reached a point where, where person B came to me and said, look, I, I wanna spend time with you. I wanna hang out with you, but I, I don't want person A there. I'm right. like, Okay, I'll be seeing you. You know, you can't come to me and say, well, I want to be friends with you, but but I don't want that person around. If you want to be friends with me, be friends with me. But don't ask me to kick someone else out of my life. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. And so I said goodbye to that friend. And it was sad. And they were sad. And I was sad. The door was always open but they didn't walk back in it because they didn't want to hang out with this person who I was hanging out with. This was the Pharisees. They wanted to hang out with the Messiah, but there's no way they were going to hang out with anyone that was, even if the Messiah was hanging out with those folks, they didn't want any part of it. Our sense of self-righteousness, it infects the church in so many insidious ways. So many, I've seen it over the years. I've seen so many people in and, and, and so many different churches come up and say, if you're, if you're letting those folks in, I can't be part of your church. It's like, okay, go find another church to be part of. If you're letting those people in to be leaders, I can't be part of you. Okay, if you're gonna, you know, if you can't, I'm sorry. You're welcome, but they're here. And, and they're gonna be here in the same way that you're here. And, and I'm not gonna kick them out because they make you uncomfortable. I'm not gonna push them to the side because it makes you uncomfortable because it, it offends your sense of righteousness. And, and that's true whether it's, it's an issue of race, whether it's an issue of economic status, whether it's an issue of educational status, whether it's an issue of, of whether you've ever been incarcerated or not, whether it's, it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, queer, plus, whatever it is. Jesus calls everyone. Jesus went to dinner with the tax collectors and the sinners. He also went to the dinner with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He also had followers that were, he had followers that were part of the oppressed class and followers that were part of the ruling class. He had followers that were wealthy and followers that were po- impoverished. He had followers that were blue-collar. He had followers that were educated and uneducated. He had followers that were men and followers that were women. And, and when folks came and said, Jesus, how can you hang out with those people? He said, are you? You know, I get what you're saying. I, 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 anyone who's a sinner, who's welcome to follow me? If you're not a sinner, I'm sorry, you, you don't need me. Bye. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. The Pharisees, the obstacle that they had to connecting was their self-righteousness, their sense of self-righteousness. And they thought they were saying to the world, Jesus is not the Messiah and that's not the beloved community. What they were in reality were saying is we're not gonna be a part of the Messiah's beloved community because we can't bring ourselves to connect with those people. They're too broken. Pharisees knew they were broken too. They understood that. They offered sacrifices. They took care of their brokenness. They at least had the decency to feel bad about their brokenness. That's how they thought about it. We're broken, but we feel bad about it. They don't feel bad about their brokenness. We can't hang out with them. Jesus said, you're all broken. That's who I came to call. If I can't call broken people into my church, there's nobody to call. If I can't call sinners into my church, there's nobody to call. And don't tell me that their sin is worse than yours. That's the one one of the things that blocks us from connecting in the beloved community. The other thing that blocks you from connecting in the beloved community is your sense of shame. Your sense of shame. I'm gonna talk about a different story now. Jump ahead to Easter. I know we just had Christmas. Easter's coming. You know, if you've heard that story, you know that Jesus was betrayed by everyone. Everyone turned away from Jesus. He went to the cross alone, except for a few women who were following from a distance. But he was there alone. Everyone betrayed him. But the scripture highlights two people in particular to see their betrayal and their response to that afterwards. Peter betrayed Jesus, denied even knowing him. He got afraid of a little girl who said, are you a follower of Jesus? No, you scare me, little girl. And He cursed, never heard of him. Don't know him, nothing to do with him. And when he realized what he'd done, he felt deep remorse and he had a hard time coming back to the community. Jesus had appeared to him with a group of disciples a couple of times. He still wasn't sure, went off to go fishing again. Jesus finally said, come on, Peter, we got to work this out. Look, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, I love you. All right, feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Let's get on with things. Let's move forward. Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. This is what happened for Judas Matthew chapter 27. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care? They retorted. That is your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and he went out and hanged himself. You see, the Pharisees' problem was they looked at the beloved community and said, Those people are too broken. for for me to be connected with them. Judas looked at the beloved community and he said, I'm too broken to be connected with them. I'm too broken. But he wasn't. He wasn't. He despaired. He was isolated, he was disconnected, he was alone, and he was so ashamed that he could not imagine that Jesus' mercy extended to him the way it extended to everyone else. You know, Judas, in his heart, in some fashion or another, said, I am not good enough to join you, Jesus. I'm not good enough to be part of your community, Jesus. Jesus. And what he couldn't hear was Jesus over the shame. He couldn't hear Jesus saying, It's not about being good enough. That's why I'm dying. Of course, you can't be good enough. Nobody can be good enough. That's why I'm dying. You're welcome. You're welcome. Come in. Join me. Join us. It's going to be a party. And you're invited. But Judas couldn't see past his shame. And so he excluded himself from the beloved community. These two obstacles, I believe, your sense of self-righteousness and your sense of shame are internal obstacles that keep us from really wanting to be part of the beloved community, part of the broken community. You can't be part of the beloved community unless you're willing to belong to the broken community and our self-righteousness and our shame keep us from really wanting that. So how do we get through these obstacles? What's the way through? It's very simple. Jesus is the way through. Yeah, I know that's the that's the easy answer. That's the churchy answer. The answer is Jesus. Whatever the question is, the answer is Jesus. This time it really is the answer. Jesus himself said, "I am the way. I am the way." He didn't say, I'll show you the way. He didn't say, I'll tell you the way. He didn't say, I'll write out some instructions for the way. He didn't say, I'll give you a spiritual GPS for the way. He said, I am the way. Jesus is the way. First, Jesus lived the way by connecting with broken people in the broken community. Jesus did not, was not afraid to associate himself and be associated with seriously broken people. Jesus connected with them. He went to dinner with them. He ate with them. He touched them and allowed them to touch him. They didn't, their brokenness didn't make him dirty. His holiness made them holy. Their brokenness didn't make him foul and, and unacceptable. His beauty made them beautiful. He redeemed and transformed, connecting with broken people in a broken community. And Jesus didn't just live the way, Jesus made the way by becoming a broken person and transforming the brokenness into beloved living. Jesus, and I know this makes some of us uncomfortable, talking about Jesus as being a broken person. I'm I'm really solid biblical foundation here. We know that Jesus didn't choose to sin. Jesus did not engage in intentional or unintentional acts of rebellion against God. He did not depart at all from the path that God laid out for him. Jesus did not deliberately or even unintentionally sin. Jesus did something much more significant. Jesus became sin. Sin became Jesus's identity for us. Every good counselor worth their salt will tell you if you go into them saying, I'm an awful person, I've done all of these awful things, and that makes me an awful person. They will let you know that you should, we cannot make our identity, build our identity around our weakness, our brokenness, our mistakes, our fallibility. Those are things that we've done, that's not who we are. If we build our identity around that, then that leads us into that shame that led Judas ultimately to kill himself. But Jesus did that. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin. He was broken. It was by his stripes, by his wounds, by his brokenness that were healed. And and he he didn't go through all of this and then obliterate the brokenness. He carried that brokenness with him into his resurrection body, into the fullness of the kingdom of God, into the fullness of the beloved community. When his disciples were like, we don't know if he's really Jesus or not. You know, is this really him or not? How did he identify himself to them? He said, here, Put your finger in the hole in my hand. Stick your hand, Thomas, in the hole in my side. It wasn't just a scar. He had holes. His body was broken even after the resurrection. But his brokenness, Jesus, the brokenness doesn't taint Jesus. Jesus turns the brokenness into beauty. Not the beauty that Madison Avenue defines or the beauty that Hollywood defines, but beauty as God sees it, the beauty as we're invited to see it, that doesn't obliterate our brokenness, but redeems it. Redeems it. Jesus finally is the way for us to connect in broken community that is and is becoming the beloved community. Jesus is the way for us to connect in the broken community that is becoming the beloved community. You see, if we just say, Jesus, I'm hanging with you wherever you go. Whatever you do, wherever you are, those are my people, that's my people. And then when we get there and we say, oh, oh, it's them too? Ah!" all right, Jesus, if you're with them, I'm with them. If they're part of you, they're part of me and I'm part of them. Jesus is the way for that. Jesus is the way that we stop excluding people based on, well, their brokenness is a lot worse than mine and they don't even have, I I know I'm broken, but I feel bad about it and they don't have the decency to feel bad about it. Instead, ask yourselves this, do you see Jesus present in their lives? Do you see the evidence of love and joy and peace in their lives? If you do, then God's already there. And if Jesus is already there, who are we to walk away and say, I can't be part of you. And if we don't see Jesus in their lives, then maybe we can be the one that loves them and they can experience Jesus through our love and through our community. And that oh boy, I got 30 seconds left. I'm going to be a couple minutes late on this. This brings us to the, you know, the practical piece of all of this. These obstacles are there. Jesus is the way through those obstacles. If we're just willing to associate with whoever Jesus was willing to associate with and connect with them, then we can connect with anybody. How do we do it? That's part of our strategy in the church is to provide opportunities and means, mechanisms for you to connect with others, diverse others. There's a lot of different ways to do that. We got, we got ongoing small groups. We've got ongoing Bible studies. We've got ongoing mission and ministry teams, you know, all over the place doing all different kinds of things. We got ongoing prayer groups with House of Prayer. We got ongoing, we got lots of stuff that's happening all the time that you can connect with folks. We got weekly worship. And I know it's like there's a pandemic and we got to wear the mask and yeah this that you yeah, have social distance make a connection even if it's 6 feet apart get to know someone new this morning that you haven't met before and look on the website and find other ways to connect and there are a lot of them there. I'm going to highlight a newish one. It's new for us and, and I say newish because it's not really new. It's just what Jesus was doing 2,000 years ago and what, what the, the Methodism was in its beginning. Our church is part of the Methodist tribe. You might not have known that. We are. And it's, it's the kind of things we used to do before we built grand buildings and professionalized clergy and those kinds of things. We're calling it microchurch. We're calling it microchurch. Other churches in other places are using that name. Um, they probably mean something different by it than we do because I didn't even check to see what they're doing with it. This is just what we're calling it. And, and, and microchurch is an opportunity to live into the broken and beloved community. It's an opportunity to live into that. Now, there's a lot of things microchurch isn't. A lot of things it isn't. And, and that's important because, and we're going to hear more about this uh, starting February 20th. You'll hear a lot more about it starting, then. this is a little tease, but just to whet your appetite here, a uh, microchurch is not a Bible study. It's not a study group. It's not a prayer group. And it's not a mini worship service. Nothing wrong with any of those things. In fact, all of those things are good. Bible study, prayer groups, study groups, worship, all of these things are good, but that's not what microchurch is. Microchurch... Microchurch is an opportunity to live into the beloved and broken community. It's a community where people are glad to see you when you're there and they miss you when you're not. The central activity of microchurch is going to be a weekly meal in someone's home or a weekly game night or for folks that are like, I just can't go into someone's house during this whole pandemic thing. Pastor, you got to understand that. We do understand that. There's going to be at least one microchurch that's Zoom only where you can connect regardless of concerns about disease or geography, you can connect. And gather regularly with a group of people who are glad when you're there and who will miss you when you're not. I'm gonna make a statement that, that sounds, I think, extraordinary and 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 perhaps too dramatic. I don't think it is. And I'm wrapping up here. This is kind of the last thing. So I'm going to be about six minutes over total. Please forgive me. Connecting with diverse people and the broken community may be the most important thing you can do as a follower of Jesus. I want you to sit with that for a minute and ponder that. And if there's something in you that that reacts against that and rejects that, that's okay. Just let it sit with you for a little while. Connecting with diverse people in the broken, beloved community may be the most important thing you can do as a follower of Jesus. We get two sermons from Jesus recorded in the scripture. We get like nine or 11 times where Jesus had meals with people. And and at the vast majority of those meals like this one at Matthew's house, we're not even given a clue as to what they talked about. We don't know whether Jesus was sharing information and insight and wisdom about the kingdom of God or whether they were talking about the weather or whether they were talking about how good the ribs were. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And and that omission highlights the fact that what's really important in this story is that they got together and connected. And we see that over and over and over again in Scripture. Jesus, when he was leaving his disciples and giving those final words to them before his crucifixion, he didn't say to them, you know what? The thing you need to do most, the way people are gonna know you're one of my followers is if you get your doctrine correct or if you have the right politics or if you have the right education or if you have the right amount of money or if you hang, or if you, if you, uh, 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 if you have the right political orientation. None of that. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples. They'll know you're my followers if you love each other the way I loved you. And he didn't even just say that. He said, The way the world, the people outside, will know whether I am who I say I am, whether the world knows how they will know that I am Messiah, that I am God in the flesh, the way they will know that is if you, my followers, are one with each other and with God and with me as I am one with the Father. The connecting isn't secondary. It isn't a byproduct. It's central and it's foundational to the mission and the ministry of the church and our identity as followers of Jesus. And going to worship and going to Bible studies and going to prayer groups, those are all good things. But if we're doing that without connecting with these diverse people that are different from us, even in ways that we have been taught are wrong and offensive, if we're not connecting, then all of that other stuff means almost nothing. Because who will know that we're followers of Jesus if we're not connecting in love with each other? Who will know that Jesus is the Son of God if we live divided, separated, segregated lives, whether segregated by race, money, politics, national borders, sexuality, sexual identity, gender, any of those things? The most important thing we can do as followers of Jesus and the broken and beloved community is to connect with diverse people. So go and connect. Looking for ways to do it? Go to the website, garfieldchurch.org. You can find ways to connect there. Keep your eyes open in February. You'll hear more about Microchurch too. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.